Today's reading is Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25, and verses 57 through 80. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my repro reproach among my people. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, 
as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. The word of the Lord. This story is about much more than Zechariah's joy at having a son at last, or Elizabeth's exaltation in being freed from the scorn of the mothers in the village. It is about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story, precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish, self-giving love. When this God acts on the large scale, he takes care of smaller human concerns as well. The drama which now takes center stage is truly the story of God, the world, and every ordinary human being who has ever lived in it. So says N.T. Wright in his commentary on today's passage. And I share that quote because as we dive into today's passage, it bears reminding that any time we reflect on the grand story of God revealed in Scripture, we are invited to find our own personal place in that story. Remembering that God cares as much about the ins and outs of your story as he does the story of the cosmos. Zechariah and Elizabeth's story offers a beautiful reminder of that truth. Before I go any further, I'm going to show my hand right away by letting you know that we're not going to spend really any time on the final portion of today's text. Instead, I want to turn our attention squarely to the first portion of today's supersized text that Brianna read for us, found in verses 5 through 25. The promise to Zechariah and Elizabeth of a child, one who would prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And I want to spend so much time here because we are currently in the middle of what season in the life of the church? Advent, exactly, yes. And what is Advent all about? And I I want you to know that there are going to be a handful of questions I'm asking today that are not rhetorical, that I I want your response and and speak loud so I can hear and others can hear as well. But what themes and values are highlighted and embodied in the Advent season? Waiting. Waiting, yeah. What else? Faith, hope, yes. Expectation, yes, absolutely. Longing, yes. Uh, What was that? Preparing our hearts, yes. So good, all of those. Longing, hope, expectation, anticipation, waiting, longing. Dave quoted uh, last week the Venerable Bede, uh, and today I'm going to quote the Venerable Wikipedia, uh, which defines Advent as a time of expectant waiting and preparation, which actually seems about right. So well done on this one, Wikipedia. And, and I want to say to you that Zechariah and Elizabeth's story embodies 
the spirit of Advent better, I think, than any other in Scripture. And by sitting with their story this morning, my hope is that we may better be able to inhabit the space that Advent offers to us as well. So, what do we know about Zechariah and Elizabeth from the text? Well, Luke tells us that they were righteous in the sight of God. They, they were blameless in the ways they obeyed the commandments of God. We also learn that they are, are barren, they're without child, and they're getting old well beyond childbearing years. And yet we learn that despite that, God promises them a child who will pave the way for the coming Messiah. And we learn that they do, in the end, have a son. They experience the fulfillment of those deep longings. And yet, I, I, I worry that there's a danger in reading and reflecting on a text like today's where we get to the happy ending within the matter of sentences. We, we go from learning that Zechariah and Elizabeth are old and barren and desiring a child to seeing God give them that child within just a few minutes, which is, is problematic because it can make it more challenging for us to enter into how hard it must have been for them to hold out hope in the midst of their longing for a child and to recognize that they had been waiting not for minutes or a few sentences, but for year after year after painful year. Their journey was not easy. For, for years, for decades actually, they had been hoping for, trying for a child. And in that season of barrenness, they likely experienced a measure of shame. Elizabeth in particularly, because culturally, the inability to conceive was almost always blamed on the woman. In a patriarchal culture like that, there really wasn't much of a conception of impotence, and, and often barrenness was assumed to be the result of some defect in the person or in the couple. Again, a source of shame. And again, they're old, uh, or, or in the more diplomatic language that Zechariah uses of Elizabeth, uh, advanced in years. And we don't know how old, but, but typically when this idiom is used in Scripture, we can assume at least in their 60s, which don't get me wrong, if, if you're here and you're in your 60s, I am not saying that you're old, uh, except perhaps by reproductive standards. Um, but truthfully for them, if a child hasn't come by their 60s, then that window has probably long since closed. And so we have Zechariah and Elizabeth in that place of deep longing and waiting and hoping for God to act. Yes, in a big picture sense, to do, to do his promised work of, of redeeming Israel, but in many ways, for them, the pain was more acute and personal as they were longing, waiting, and hoping for a child of their own. Their entire life was one long advent, one long season of agonizing waiting, hoping for a future filled with new life, praying that God would act in their lives in such a way as to fulfill those longings and tangibly demonstrate his faithfulness. But to this point, it had been decades of waiting for nothing, with no signs that they would see their circumstance change. Hope had to have been wearing thin as they experienced a lifelong season of barrenness. And so if hope was hard for them to come by. Who could fault them? I mean, the waiting, after all, in the, in the words of the late, great Tom Petty, is the hardest part. And so the question I'd like to ask each of us this morning is, what is your season of barrenness? Because I believe barren seasons are universal to the human experience. 
Perhaps you've experienced many such seasons. You might be in the middle of one right now. Your season of barrenness might have been or might be just like Zechariah and Elizabeth's. You may have been or may still be longing for a child. You tried or are trying to conceive. You've experienced nothing but heartache in that process. You pray fervently, and yet after a while, you wonder if your prayers are even being heard. You may have even prayed that God would just take away the longing, because unfulfilled longing can be one of the greatest sources of pain in life. Or maybe your season of barrenness wasn't or isn't biological barrenness. Maybe you lost a job, and and obtaining a new source of income and employment seemed impossible. Perhaps your season of barrenness comes from a child you've had whose life has gone off the rails and you feel helpless to do anything about it. Or perhaps it's the pain of divorce or of longing to find a partner in life or a broken friendship, a cancer diagnosis. The ways we can fill in the blanks of what our personal barrenness looks like or has looked are as numerous and diverse as all of humanity, but the common thread is that the place of barrenness is painful, it's confusing, it's indefinite, and it leaves us hoping for a day when God either removes the longing or better yet fulfills the longing. And I want to suggest to you this morning that being in that barren place of waiting is Advent. It is the place of Zechariah and Elizabeth before the visitation from the angel, or before the birth of John. And for that reason, Advent can be perhaps the most challenging of seasons. I think we often treat Lent, at least in the church world, as the most introspective or challenging season because it invites us to acknowledge and confront our sin. And that certainly is hard and painful work, but my experience tells me that perhaps Advent's invitation is even harder because it invites us to acknowledge and confront the hopes and longings we have that have not yet been fulfilled and may not be fulfilled in this lifetime. How do we hold out hope in such a season, in a place of unfulfilled longings? And here again, I think Elizabeth and Zechariah can provide a helpful pathway for holding on to hope and trust in a season of barrenness. But as we look at their story, again, I want to offer a strong disclaimer that it can be easier to find inspiration, I know, in their story because we also get to read about their happy ending and, and the end of their barrenness. And not all stories get the nice bow on them that theirs does, and not all longings find such a satisfactory fulfillment because life on this side of eternity is, in a very real sense, one long advent. Some hopes and longings may not be fulfilled on this side of resurrection. But what then can we take from their story? What hope can they offer to those of us in an Advent season of barrenness and longing and hopeful expectation? Let's take a look. First, I think Zechariah and Elizabeth have some daily concrete reminders built into their lives to remind them of God's faithfulness. And what do I mean by that? Well, We just need to look at their names. And and this is one of my favorite exercises when reading scripture, to look up the meaning of the names of the characters in the story. Because as we're reading our Bibles, when translating, our Bibles usually just transliterate the names of characters, meaning they just write in English how the names sound in Hebrew. But the thing is, each name in Hebrew actually means 
something. It communicates a message that the original audience would have heard and understood when those names were referenced. And oftentimes our Bibles will include what those names mean in like little footnotes at the bottom. Now, my name, for example, Matthew, means gift of the Lord. Uh, you likely didn't hear that when you hear my name. You didn't probably think this morning, oh good, the gift of the Lord is preaching today. Um, maybe you did. Thank you for that if you did. Um, I don't even hear that when I hear my own name, and I know what it means. Uh, perhaps my wife is the only one who hears it every time her heart skips a beat when I enter a room, but that's probably it. Um, you know, giving our children names that explicitly convey a message has largely been a practice that we've lost in our culture. I mean, the closest ex examples we maybe have today are names like joy or faith or hope, names that don't need unpacking or translation to understand what the message is. And yet even there, they aren't necessarily like theological statements. And yet many, if not most, scriptural names were intended to communicate and remind people about some aspect of God. And so what about Elizabeth and Zechariah? What do their names mean? Well, the name Elizabeth in Hebrew means God is my oath. God is my oath. That's a rich name. What do you hear in a name like that? God is my oath. Sorry, what was that? Commitment. Yeah, an oath is a commitment or a pledge. So we hear, God is my oath. God's my commitment. What else do we hear in that? I mean, there's a lot that can be contained within that. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Yeah, absolutely. What else? God is my oath. A promise. Commitment, yeah. Because an oath is a pledge. It's, it's, it's something we commit to. It's, it's often forward-looking. So God is my oath. It's Elizabeth's name. And then the name Zechariah means God remembers or God has remembered. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth, by virtue of their names alone, live with daily reminders for themselves and for each other of who God is to them. God is a God who remembers. God is their oath. So Luke starts his gospel by telling us there's a priest named God remembers who had a wife named God is my oath. And they're both righteous in God's sight, but they were childless because God is my oath was barren and they were getting old. And one other fun name-related side note, when the angel meets Zechariah, what does he tell him to name his son? John. Well, I mean, that's our transliteration, but, but the angel actually tells him, name his son Yahweh is gracious, or Yahweh has shown favor. You see, names matter, and, and in this instance, their names give them a reminder to hold out hope in their Advent season of barrenness because God remembers. God is their oath. And so I wonder, how might you, how might I, how might, how might we build reminders into our lives of who God is to us? I mean, I'd argue that what we're doing this morning displays several ways that we keep God in front of us. Regular worship does that. Particular practices within our worship do that as well. When we light the candles for Advent, when we read the readings from Scripture, we remind ourselves. When we eat the bread and drink from the cup, we remind ourselves. And I think it's also important that we find personal ways outside of Sunday morning 
to do this as well. Uh, the last time I, I preached, I shared the meaning behind my shalom tattoo that's on my forearm. You can't see right now, but the reminder that it serves to me. And the one other tattoo I have, the first tattoo I ever got, is this one on my ring finger. Uh, a quick story there. So the first 11 years of my marriage, I had a, a gold actual ring on this finger. Uh, and then about six years ago, we were staying at a friend's cabin on a lake, and they had a pontoon, and we took their pontoon out on the lake. And the one thing I forgot to do is check the gas before we did so. And so needless to say, eventually in the middle of our little excursion, we ran out of gas and weren't going anywhere. And it was a small, quiet lake, so there was nobody else on the water. I couldn't flag anyone down to try to get some gas, so strike one there. And then I got in the water, and, and we had a rope on the pontoon, and I pulled it to the nearest dock as I was swimming but none of the homes nearby had anyone there. I was knocking on doors to see if anybody had gas, so strike two. And so it eventually became clear I had two options. It was either walk around the lake, probably about a mile, barefoot on a gravel road, or take the shortcut and swim across the lake to get back to the cabin, which is what I opted to do. And I was really proud of my swimming prowess as I made it over to the cabin's dock in no time, but that victory was very short-lived because when I came up out of the water, I noticed that a familiar golden 11-year companion was missing from my ring finger strike three and then some. Um, and after losing the ring, obviously, my next step was to replace it. And I decided that I wanted to replace it with, A, something that I couldn't lose in the future. I mean, Lord willing, if I lose this guy, I've got bigger problems than a lost ring. And... I wanted to replace it with something that, for me at least, would even communicate its message in a way that metal alone didn't do for me. And so I opted to have the Hebrew word ehud tattooed on my finger, and it's the Hebrew word for beloved. Now, I opted for that word because for me it provides kind of a dual reminder, a double message. One, that in kind of the words of Song of Songs, I'm my beloved's and she is mine. It's, it's my marriage identity, a reminder that Sally is my beloved and I am her beloved. But it also serves a secondary and in some ways maybe more important reminder that I'm also God's beloved, that that is my identity. Not a day goes by when I'm not faced with a reminder of my belovedness in God's sight. And I can't tell you how many times that that reminder has come at just the right time for me. And I think we all need built-in reminders of who God is. Reminders as ever-present as names and tattoos. And so I'd encourage you today, ask what reminders do you already have built into your life of who God is? Or what reminders can you build in to your life to remind you of who God is? Because if there's one thing I know to be true, it's that in the Advent season, in our seasons of barrenness, these reminders can be our lifeblood. I have to believe that Zechariah and Elizabeth drew strength and hope from the daily reminder that their names offered. God is my oath. God remembers. But then I, I want to draw our attention this morning to, to one other thing that I think may have helped them hold out hope in their Advent season of waiting. And, and this one might be a little more unexpected because I think we often view it as a, as a negative. Now, but how does Zechariah respond after the angel tells him that he and Elizabeth will have a son? Shaking your head, Jane. Yeah, like, yeah, he, he doesn't believe. Like, how, how can this be is his exact question. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm old. She's advanced in years. So how will I know that this happens? And, and what, what is the angel's response to Zechariah's response? What does Zechariah experience as a result? 
he can't talk, right? He, he, he's told you will not speak until this comes to bear, everything that I've told you. And if you're like me, you, you read that and, and you see it as a punishment for his unbelief, that he wasn't trusting God's promise, that, that when the moment he had long been hoping for finally arrived, it seemed too good to be true. And so God is punishing him. I mean, almost Vader-like, you know, I find your lack of faith disturbing. And certainly, this temporary muteness was a consequence of Zechariah's response. The angel makes that clear. And yet we must remember that when we face divinely imposed consequences, God's aim is restorative. It doesn't stop at punitive. God's justice isn't aimed at retribution, but at restoration. And so it's not like God was just so angry at Zechariah for not believing that he decided he's going to inflict suffering on him by making him unable to speak for almost a year. Rather, I truly believe that while there was consequence in it, it was almost immediately experienced by Zechariah as an unexpected gift for many reasons. First off, I mean, he had been waiting a lifetime for a child, and he had also been waiting a lifetime to see God restore his people's fortunes and bring about their salvation and liberation. And when you're waiting for something like that and reflecting on it, I mean, how do you create space in your life? to reflect on how God's working in your life and around you. I mean, it's not easy to do. We're so busy. I mean, have you ever tried to even go a day without speaking? That's so hard, especially if you're surrounded by people. And yet silence offers some gifts to us. And, and I want you to remember that Zechariah is experiencing his long silence in a culture long before that silence could be filled by Netflix and Spotify and the myriad other things that we use to distract ourselves from quiet and stillness. So what things do we experience when we're in a place of quiet? Not a rhetorical question. What do we experience in the quiet? You hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. A lot of the competing voices are cut out when we're in the, including our own when we're in a space of quiet. What else? Peace. Peace. Absolutely. What else? Clarity. Clarity. Absolutely. Yeah, there's space to reflect space to, to ponder, to listen, things that are really hard, period, but even harder when we're talking. And, and, and that's taken away from Zechariah. But I want you to think about how, how for Zechariah, and really Elizabeth as well, because she's lost her conversation partner for the time being. And so she's also experienced a season of quiet beyond the norm. And they've desperately been longing for something for their entire lifetime. And as the years passed, that thing they were longing for began to seem like a pipe dream, like it would never be fulfilled, but now it would be. And as the fulfillment of that longing is on the horizon, they are gifted with almost an entire year to reflect on it, to reflect on what God has been doing and is doing in their lives and will do. Sure, it's an imposed season of quiet reflection, but still I have to believe that Zechariah and Elizabeth soon experienced that space to reflect on what God might be doing in their life as a gift. Uh, Frederick Beekner writes, In the silence, 
of a midwinter dusk, there is a sound so faint that for all you can tell, it may be the only sound, only, sorry, it may be only the sound of the silence itself. You hold your breath to listen. You are aware of the beating of your heart. The extraordinary thing that is about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. And Advent is the name of that moment. And that moment is what Zechariah and Elizabeth have in this silence. But there's one other gift in this imposed silence that I have a hunch we also overlook. And think of it this way. If you had an encounter like Zechariah did with the angel, I mean, how would you handle that? I mean, if it was in me, I would quickly second guess whether it even actually happened. I would think like I was hallucinating, maybe it was a dream. I mean, it would have sounded crazy to others and even to myself as I thought about it. And, and there were no witnesses who saw it to tell me, no, you're not dreaming, that actually happened. And then the days and weeks that would pass afterwards, even if I didn't dismiss it as a dream, I'd still have no proof that that promise and that experience was real and that it would be fulfilled. I mean, if you've ever tried to get pregnant, you know how long and agonizing that period of waiting to find out can be. And so even after receiving this promise from the angel, it would have been likely a couple of months at least before Zechariah and Elizabeth have tangible proof that the encounter happened and that the angel's message could be trusted. That would be an incredibly difficult space to live in. And it would have been even more so, I would argue, if Zechariah had left that moment in the temple with his ability to speak and just went back to life as normal, life as usual. But that's not what happened. Instead, Zechariah is given a tangible daily reminder of that encounter. He couldn't speak. The angel told him he wouldn't be able to speak. And so the encounter wasn't just a figment of his imagination. And the angel's words weren't hollow. Every moment that Zechariah couldn't speak reminded him that it did happen. He did encounter the angel of the Lord, and the angel's words clearly did carry power. And so can you see now how, how this punishment or consequence of his disbelief would have quickly turned out to actually be a divine gift of grace to Zechariah and Elizabeth in this season of waiting? And I just wonder where God might be offering us a similar gift. That in the midst of our Advent season, is there some circumstance that when viewed one way might seem really hard and challenging, but when viewed from a different angle might actually be a divine gift. That when we receive it as such can be a vehicle of God's grace in ways that we couldn't otherwise experience. We have some dear friends who this past year have experienced a year from hell. I, I really don't know any other way to put it. And I, I don't think God orchestrated for them the pain of this past year at all. Uh, we live in a broken world, and, and sometimes the brokenness and the pain of that brokenness can be so acute. And God is not the source of brokenness, but God is the healer in the midst of brokenness. And in the midst of brokenness, God can still do his redemptive work in our lives. And, and these friends of ours, in the midst of this hellacious year, have discovered God showing them the beauty of vulnerability and what it means to depend on others to meet their needs in a way that they never would have if life was smooth sailing or if they could operate under the illusion of self-sufficiency that most of us go under every single day. 
And again, that's not to say that they would choose the barrenness of this past season, and it's not to say that God imposed that barren season on them, but it is to say that they have discovered divine gifts of grace and reminders of God's presence with them in this Advent season of their lives that they may not have experienced so profoundly any other way. And so where might God want to do the same thing in your season of longing and barrenness and Advent waiting? I mean, just a couple of days we get to Christmas and we get to celebrating and being reminded of the anchor of our hope that God both has and will one day fulfill those hopes. But we're not there yet. And so where might God want to do that Advent work in us? Let us heed Dave's usual admonition to not short-circuit the work of Advent. Let us learn from Zechariah and Elizabeth's example that while the barrenness and longing of Advent can be the most painful and uncertain season in life, Advent can also contain some of the most unexpected gifts. And it invites us to experience the sustaining power of God's faithfulness in deeper ways than we'll find anywhere else. Henry Nouwen writes that active waiting is waiting that pays attention, is fully present to what is really going on, even when to all outward appearances nothing is going on. Because as Nouwen writes elsewhere, the Lord is coming, always coming. When you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you will recognize him at any moment of your life. Life is Advent. Life is recognizing the coming of the Lord. And so this Advent, may we wait actively, paying attention, with ears to hear and eyes to see God's presence at any and every moment of our lives. Because even in the barrenness, God is our oath and God remembers. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, pray with me.